pressing down a special key and place a little melody. Welcome once again to Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOM LP Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer. And each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of all of our past programs over the past 12 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRICEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRICEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRICEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. And last but not least, Radio and Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values, shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting the GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu ges and follow them on Twitter at, at GES Center NCSU. WCOM and Radio in Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. It is really gratifying when friends and listeners suggest guests for me here on Radio in Vivo. And this week we have a prime example, a woman who has had an illustrious career that has encompassed science, medicine, and business. Dr. Myla Lai Goldman has advanced all three of those areas and continues to make estimable contributions to them all. Myla is a pathologist by scientific training. 
Today, she is the co-founder, CEO, and president of a startup company here in the Triangle that emerged from work done at the Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. The firm is called Gene-Centric Therapeutics Incorporated, and it is working on the cutting edge of the revolution in cancer diagnosis and treatment. We will we'll hear all about Gene-Centric and many more highlights from Mila's career over the course of our hour together. Mila received a BA in biology from the University of Pennsylvania in 1979 and her MD from the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons in 1983. Prior to establishing GeneCentric in 2011, she was with LabCorp in Burlington for 18 years in a leadership executive role. Today, along with her GeneCentric activities, she is also involved in the venture capital business, and we will hear all about that in more. Mila Lai Goldman, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you. Um, let's start our conversation by turning back the clock. What initially attracted you to medicine, and then how did you end up pursuing pathology as your career focus? Well, it's uh, kind of an interesting story about uh, why I went into medicine, and it probably relates to the fact that my sister um, was the first one in our family to go into the sciences, and I was so impressed with what she had done and thought, well, she's smart, maybe I'm as smart, maybe I should go in the same direction. But really what began to motivate me was um, after uh, this first uh, family encounter was really learning more about what physicians could do. And as I went into medical school and um, began my career, um, there, it was the days when a new disease was emerging, HIV, mm -hmm. what we now call HIV. We didn't know what caused it. Mm -hmm. And that really gave me, I was training in New York City, and it really gave me pause and a purpose and thought, well, this is something that is so impactful. This is what my career really has to be about. And um, as, I, as I learned more about you know, my patients and the disease, it really steered me in the direction of going into pathology. So what, what was the connection there? Uh, well, the, the connection, well, I always say that when people think about pathologists from my generation, they think of the TV show Quincy. Right. Okay. <laughs> Today, probably people think of CSI. Sure. Okay? So most people think of pathologists and think of death. But pathology is really... And those are forensic. Those are forensic, right? but that's what most people think of sure. when they think of a pathologist. Mm -hmm. But a pathologist really studies disease. A pathologist is an investigator and is trying to put the pieces of a puzzle together. And in some instances, that may be for forensic purposes, but in other instances, it's to understand new diseases. As well as old, as well as chronic diseases, and try and solve that puzzle, put all the pieces together so that we can have solutions for patients, and that's what intrigued me about pathology. But I'll mention one other thing, sure, because I think this is something 
everyone needs, and that's called mentors. And I found at Columbia um, a wonderful instructor who really, you know, embraced me and taught me about pathology and what pathologists could could be. And I think when you have that person that you can say, I want to be like that person, that also motivates you to go in a in a certain direction. I so see. really mentors also. Okay, very good. Well, um, I understand that you joined LabCorp when it was still Roche Biomedical Laboratories. Yes. Uh, after at a period of time, it changed and became the LabCorp we, we right. know today. Uh, what was your initial position with the company? Well, uh, um, my initial position was um, as a pathologist at the Research Triangle Park facility. And um, one Im important point of that story is, um, is that there was a new technology coming out in the late 1980s. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure many of your listeners have heard about PCR. Right, sure. And probably it's been mentioned in, in uh, before. So I won't go into all the details about it, but it was a revolutionary way to find the needle in the haystack. And um, in the late 1980s, Roche um, took the bought the exclusive license to this technology and built a facility that is now a outstanding huge facility in Research Triangle Park um, dedicated to PCR and HIV. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here was this momentous technology brought together with this disease that we were just really learning about. And it was a wonderful opportunity to be the medical person who could help bring forward um, that technology and bring it, transform it, transition it from the research environment into clinical practice, which has really been now what I've done my whole career. So that, that's really what the momentum was to take me. Um, I was a fellow here at UNC and transitioned me into the, the business environment at Roche Biomedical. I see. And when, when, did, uh, when did it become LabCorp? And kind of give us the overview of your, your 18 years with the company. Um, certainly. So I joined uh, Roche Biomedical in uh, 1990. And, oh, I might not get the, the exact day quite right, but it was towards the end of 1996, beginning of 1997, that uh, Roche Biomedical and National Health Labs merged to form LabCorp, which was then a, a public company. Mm -hmm. And um, in those beginning years, uh, in the early 1990s, I was um, working on HIV and working also on some of the very early tests in breast cancer, um, some of which are now quite common, such as uh, testing for HER2 nu. We were doing the beginnings work of that in the early 1990s. And um, this was an, a new lab, an innovative lab, bringing very cutting edge te technologies to market. And I was in a now a new business environment, but I'd always worked for my dad was a CPA, and he, always, he taught me sort of some of the fundamentals of business, 
encouraged me to even take a few business classes as an undergrad. That came at, in handy, didn't it? Which came in <laughs> handy. A couple of Wharton classes, mm-hmm. you know, as an undergrad, as pre-med, but, you know, it's always good to have a little bit of a background. And, you know, I began understanding that if I wanted resources for my laboratory at Research Triangle Park, I couldn't just talk path speak. I mm-hmm. had to learn the language of the business. And um, and it didn't feel uncomfortable. It felt rather comfortable. And that gave me you know, more connectivity, I think, with, with the company to be able to, to make that transition. And so by the time the the merger happened, um, t- you know, towards the mid-latter 1990s. Um, I was already a bit transitioning from being that pathologist behind the microscope and, you know, in the lab to venturing out of the research triangle and making it to Burlington to kind of ask for resources in the language of the company. Mm-hmm. And that's really how the transition happened. And about a year after the merger, I was asked to take on more of a, um, a chief medical officer role, a chief science officer role in the company. Um, so, and that happened in uh, 1998. Okay. And then spent the, ten, the next 10 years both working with the Research Triangle facility, the molecular facility, but also being engaged with the, with the company I as see. well. So you were really at a at a very high executive level. Uh, you were executive vice president yes. as well as yes. chief medical officer and chief scientific y- officer. Yes. You must have had to have an enlarged business card. <laughs> no, the card always stayed the same, and um, the mission always stayed the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a physician trying to advance diagnostics for patient care. It's just the environment's a little different than most. Sure. But always worked with wonderful people at the company and Mm -hmm. really um, could be impactful, which was important. Well, I I was very impressed in in preparing, saw that you were involved in the introduction of more than 400 clinical assays. Yes. Uh, and, And I think people probably don't have an appreciation of the importance of those those diagnostic tests in advancing medical care. Yes, I, I think that's something that uh, we in diagnostics um, have to work a little bit harder at having people really understand what the value is of what we provide. And I think I mentioned this one example to you when we were just chatting before, mm-hmm. that uh, one of the areas I was very involved with was HIV. And when I look back in my career, the fact that, you know, in my training, in my medical school days, I couldn't save any any patient then. But by the end of the 1990s and beginning of 2000s, we really had great drugs. But the reality is the doctors wouldn't know how to use those drugs if they didn't have the diagnostics we brought on board. And were some many of those 400 novel tests that you brought on board, whether it was HIV viral load or um, which measures the amount of virus in the blood or HIV genotyping, which gives you information about what drugs are more likely to work or not work. These are really key in the, in the HIV physician's armamentarium as well as the drugs of taking care of the patients. And turning it, uh, what was a killer disease, into a chronic condition. That's correct. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
Well, that that must uh, that must have been a very rewarding uh, career with them then. It was tremendously rewarding, and um, during those days, uh, we, you know, we also saw many other innovations, not just for HIV, but thinking back, um, whether it be for hepatitis C, um, we revolutionized, worked with groups to revolutionize the delivery of pap testing for cervical cancer and HPV, testing for cystic fibrosis. And now one can hardly, you know, not hear about an innovation in cancer and other areas. Um, in, you know, one of the turning points for me was in 2003. Um, my dad uh, developed lung cancer mm -hmm. in 2003, and there was my sister and I, both physicians, both um, you know, really having spent our whole careers you know, trying to help patients, and we really couldn't do much. There wasn't much there to help our dad. Sure. And, um, you know, they, th that really sparked my interest to understand, you know, what more could we do? Um, so that, that was one other turning point in my career. Another one was, you know, being in, in the broad lab corp environment and accepting the fact that medicine is a business. Um, I said, well, maybe we can actually study um, what, what factors make a successful test, a test that's adopted by physicians, and, and you actually learn more almost by the ones that never get adopted. What is it? And that led to, you know, uh, developing um, a test adoption model, which really, you know, taught us. We could really identify what those factors were in demonstrating, you know, the utility of tests. You really had to have the data to demonstrate the utility to make a test something that the physician would use, that the payers would pay for, mm -hmm. and that we would have data that it really changed the outcome of the patient. And so those points sort of towards the middle of the 2000s really led me to say, you know, what more can I do? I've, I've lab, the career at LabCorp has been, has been fantastic. Um, I, you know, hope I've had an influence that's helped it be fantastic, but perhaps there's even, you know, more than I can do with, with not just the science I've learned, but this business knowledge that I've learned as well. Sure, which which brings us to that's right, gene centric, and uh, your your departure from LabCorp. You you basically retired from LabCorp. Yes, uh, although you still remain strongly associated yes. with the company, yes. uh, and I do want to spend much of our uh, remaining time delving into uh, your current association with gene centric. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the establishment of the company itself? back in uh, 2011. I understand that it derived directly, as I said in the introduction, from the scientific accomplishments of doctors Chuck Peru and Neil Hayes from the UNC Lyingberger uh, Cancer Center. And uh, as I mentioned to you off the air, Chuck was actually a guest yes. here uh, in 2012. So people might want to go back and take a listen to that show. Uh, so I guess that was really when things were just getting started with GeneCentric, right? Yes. Um, well, I was lucky enough to know Chuck even before I founded GeneCentric. I was very aware of his work um, and his work primarily in breast cancer and breast cancer subtypes. 
And really, you know, with all the work I'd been doing in molecular diagnostics and infectious disease and really searching then for, you know, what, how is it, can, can we transform um, cancer diagnostics and, and uh, understand more about cancer genomics? And that really led me to be interested in what Chuck was doing and beginning some discussions with him and about, and he, he had already begun some work in this area with Neil Hayes, and saying, well, with what you did in breast cancer, can it be done in other cancers as well, such as lung cancer, which had become a particular interest sure. of mine? Mm -hmm. And so that really, you know, was part of the beginnings of the um, technical discussions about what the science would be in the company. But I was also lucky enough to meet the, the group at Hatteras Venture Partners, one of the venture group in, in Durham, North Carolina, because uh, one thing when you start a company is uh, you not only need science, but you also need money. Sure. <laughs> so um, I was lucky enough to meet the group there, and they were also very aware of Chuck and his work and were interested to figure out a way that um, they could invest in him and help him bring the science together. So it all felt like a match made in heaven, you know, really about having uh, the interest in lung cancer, someone with experience in building genomic subtype diagnostics, oh, excuse me, already some work having been accomplished, and then people, uh, you know, who were interested to fund it. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, my main, my relationship with LabCorp has been very maintained, and they have interest in these areas as well. And of course, in addition to them having, having you know, money and the ability to fund us, they also have labs mm -hmm. that can help us on the science side. So again, another part of the puzzle all coming together to see if we could transition um, the technology out of the university and, and see how we could advance it and bring it forward. And really, that's, that's much of what gene-centric is. Um, it's, it's seeing incredibly promising work and incredibly promising research, understanding from the business work that I've done the development that really needs to be done, not just on the science side, but on demonstrating how it can be useful in patient management. Sure. And then, you know, bridging it to the people then who can benefit from it, which is certainly patience, and it certainly can be collaborating with companies who build kit, but also um, with the drug developers, because what we're really trying to do is, is really change drug development so that um, we know who will really respond to, to these drugs. Well, it was, it was certainly serendipitous that, that you were involved, given the varied background that you brought to the table and, and I'm sure the vision. Um, well, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, when I mentioned I was looking, I was looking to see how I could use everything that I've learned. That's, um, I think that's what's made me drive. Um, that's what actually drew me back from my microscope and mm -hmm. saying I, my role and what I'm most comfortable with and enjoy doing and hopefully are impactful is by, you know, bringing these groups together 
to work together in ways that are different. And as I mentioned, I think we need to expand what we think of a pathologist. Because I think of everything I do is still being under the definition of a pathologist, solving those mysteries of life, but doing it in a way that can actually impact and benefit patients. So once a pathologist, always a pathologist. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, um, Mala, let's talk a little bit more about the, the scientific uh, foundation uh, of the company, uh, particularly as it was getting started. Um, tell us about uh, Chuck and Neil's work and, and how it transitioned into gene-centric and, and into becoming a product. Um, certainly. Well, when we think about one of the first things um, that we do when we see a patient is make a diagnosis. And part of making that diagnosis in a patient with cancer is telling them what kind of cancer they have. Now really that's transitioning, even that's transitioning a little bit in these days of genomics. Mm -hmm. But what it's been primarily is looking under the microscope and looking at what it looks like. And then we know as pathologists what things look like are certain type of cancer. Sure. But now that we have genomic tools, we almost have a genomic microscope. And that's, there are many methods. I mentioned PCR, there's sequencing, there's all these more genomic tools. And one might think of them as a super high-powered microscope in, in, in one regard. And um, so what this super high-powered microscope of genomics is able to do is really dig deeper into the actual changes, the genetic changes in the tumor that are um, ca causing the disease. It's also um, allowing us to put these tumors into more refined categories that are based on, you know, really the biology in those categories. And these days, we, we can do that through, um, through these genomic techniques and create huge databases, um, many of which are, are actually publicly available, and allow us to do some sophisticated, what we call bioinformatics. So much research these days is not just done in the typical laboratory that we call, you know, the wet laboratory that people are used to. Right. Um, it's really almost done in the cloud with using these sophisticated bioinformatic tools. So that's what um, GeneCentric has really been able to do. It's been able to take this super high-powered microscope using sequencing, RNA sequencing, mm -hmm. and then use very sophisticated bioinformatic tools to sort tumors into more refined um, categories that tell us about the biology. And then that biology tells us whether or not that patient is likely to respond or not respond to certain drugs. So this, this is the establishment of uh, your, I guess, major product still, the cancer subtype platform. Right. Uh, I'm going to learn more okay. about yeah, that's that. That's right. Well, those categories 
are the subtypes. Right, right. And, and this a is a, a real revolution in, in the approach to cancer and, the, and ultimately the treatment of cancer. It's revolutionary in the approach to cancer, its ability to integrate into um, drug development at any stage of drug development, whether it's at the beginning, middle, or end, and um, really identify which patients are responders or non-responders. It can look at immune functions in the tumor and immunotherapy is a very big category. Sure. It can look at any drug target, and it can be applied to any tumor type. So while we began in lung cancer, we've really um, also, we've moved into other cancers such as head and neck and bladder cancer, and we're even moving into others as well. So it's a very broad platform. Well, the today, if uh, you suddenly discover you, you have cancer, you should expect more from your caregiver than you have cancer or even simply you have lung cancer, you have pancreatic cancer, whatever it might be, you should be expecting subtype information given that they've analyzed the, the tumor correctly, right? Well, today most of our work is being done with the drug companies, um, either helping them analyze clinical trials work that they've done mm -hmm. Or, also, or integrating into clinical trials that they are working on for the future. And as we analyze the data from these trials and understand how the subtype platform is contributing, then this technology will be built into testing and kits that in the future will be available. So we're still in the stage of integrating into drug development, but we anticipate with the kinds of um, work that we're doing and um, the interest that we're seeing that over the, the next few years, we'll see it integrate specifically into, into patient care. Into clinical practice. Into clinical practice. Okay. Yes. Well, th this all really is uh, fitting in with the, the movement uh, toward personalized or, um, as it's now referred to, precision medicine. Right. Yes, um, and uh, I appreciate that you you said first personalized, and then maybe tweaked it a little bit to say precision medicine. Yeah. Well, and we've seen a transition. We, in yeah, the, we've in we the have seen a transition in the nomenclature, and I, I I often get asked about what's the is are they two different things, and they really they really aren't. But you know, the one thing that we found is, um, you know, with personalized medicine, people. People thought that the medicine was going to be, you know, developed for them. And while there, there is kind of an, uh, one application these days um, with a recent innovation, CAR T, which, mm -hmm. which, which really is for them. Which we've had on the show. Oh, okay, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. The UNC folks working right, on that. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> we transitioned a bit to using more the term precision medicine. and. You know, the way I like to say, to give the example, it's, and I, I can't say that I'm the one who originated this description, was that, you know, medicine today is more like one size fits all, okay? And uh, the analogy I would give is, you know, with clothes. I mean, does one size really fit all? I mean, we're talking to each other, I'm, you know, five foot one and a, 
you know, hundred some odd pounds. One size never fits me. <laughs> right. One size fits all. So, you know, it shouldn't be. In medicine, there's really an analogy to that. But in, so in clothes, we have sizes, right? We have what two, four, ten, twelve. It's 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 not that we're making clothes usually for just that one person. We fit into a category. And that's sort of the difference maybe between personalized medicine I see in precision medicine okay. is mm -hmm. we are trying to find the category you're most like, but recognizing you're not like every other category. Okay, and That's more what precision medicine is about because we, for most part, don't see, you know, a, except for the example that I give, you know, a, a real a therapy being developed usually for that one person. So I, I find that to be kind of a useful distinguishing of, of some of the differences that we're seeing. But with precision medicine, we are looking at outcomes um, more, and we're making sure that we are identifying the therapy that that patient is most likely to respond to or not to respond to, and maybe there's a risk in taking that medicine. So why put that patient through that risk if they're not going to respond? And I know that uh, this has started really finding its way into the, the overall healthcare marketplace, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, the example that I gave with HIV mm -hmm. is really a tremendous example and one of the first examples I really think of precision medicine. Um, and I know people sometimes you know, get a little frustrated, oh, we've heard about this for years and years, when is it gonna come? Well, you know, there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution right. to precision <laughs> medicine. It's really um, disease by disease. It's changing the way we as physicians all practice, which means different from how we were trained. It means changing the payment system, the regulatory framework. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is a process that's taking a period of time, you know, to really accomplish. But let's, you know, I always look back and say, you know, in, in uh, the 1981 time frame when HIV, you know, came, really the first publications were appearing in the New England Journal, I mean, those pa patients all died. Right. Um, you know, when, within less than 20 years, we had developed many drugs and many tests and really and they were integrated together and we really changed the course. And that's really precision medicine in action. I see. Well, generally speaking, uh, Milo, how will improved diagnostics uh, that identify these specific cancer subtypes, uh, such as your, your company offers, how will those uh, developments improve therapeutic outcomes? How does it all tie together? What we're able to do with the platform is inform drug developers of which patients are, are really more, most likely to be responders or non-responders. That should make their trials more efficient because they'll know which patients they need to identify. Or so they're not using a shotgun approach. So they're not using a one-size-fits-all <laughs> approach. Right. Um, and um, also um, it can help uh, drug developers if they've had unexpected findings in a trial 
re, you know, reanalyze their data, mm-hmm. and that may inform them of you know, a population, again, one that might be didn't respond, and if they didn't include that in their data analysis, then maybe the trial would have been successful. Um, and it may also give opportunities for drugs that have been on the market, and um, maybe by adding the subtype to um, to their usage may give it a you know a, a new rejuvenated life, whether it be because it's uh, can be more competitive in the market or or change that drug's use in the market. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how we see it can help. It- and there's developers. also the, the along the same lines the opportunity for uh, drug developers to perhaps go back and take another look at compounds that have failed. That's right? a really that's a really important point, mm-hmm. and um, because how many compounds have failed that are sitting on the shelf, and um, that maybe if we had that opportunity to relook at the data, that um, you know that compound chances are much has already been invested in it could really have a new, uh, you know, a renewed new life or interest by either that drug developer, or it may even be in gene-centric's future to in-license that compound and mu- move it f- uh, forward as well. I see. So that's that's something you're you're actually looking at. That's something that repurposing. that repurposing we think could really be a part of our business model to, to do as well. It's, it's a very interesting concept because the, the refinements that you offer uh, with the subtype uh, platform can engender a whole new way of thinking about a particular drug that, as you say, may be sitting on the shelf having failed and having lost you know tens or perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars in development uh, and didn't make it. But maybe if you take a more precise look, may be very, very useful in certain populations. Absolutely. And um, I think that precision medicine offers us new opportunities and, as I mentioned before, new business models. I know one thing when we were chatting before, um, you said, well, I thought you were gene-centric diagnostics, but now you're gene-centric therapeutics. Mm-hmm. That was my next question. Oh, okay. I'm to. sorry. I beat <laughs> you okay. to it. You but go right ahead. <laughs> okay. I mean, what was the source of the change? And, of course, you know, I did come from a diagnostic background, so one would think that the company, you know, I would found would be a diagnostic company. But, you know, when you do that, people think, okay, well, you're building kits or you have a lab that you're offering testing for. Mm -hmm. And what we were doing was so innovative and so different um, uh, that we really felt that we didn't want to be slotted into that one category. If we're able to change um, drug development and maybe even use our platform to in-license compounds, we're much closer really to being a drug innovator and a drug developer than a diagnostic company. So um, yes, we're not the typical drug developer or the typical diagnostic company. We're the bridge between the two, and precision medicine is is you know, having us stand on our heads and look at things a little bit differently and maybe 
maybe we need innovation even in the business models to be successful and bring it forward. Sure. So well, when did that, that name change actually take place? That name change just took place this year, oh, earlier okay. in the, in the okay. spring. Uh, you know, we really... So all new letterhead and <laughs> I had to do it all. <laughs> we had to do it all. And uh, yes, that, that, and you'd, th you'd think it might be easy to change your name, but there's, uh, it, it gets a little complicated, but it's part of your identity and it's part of what people think of you and what you're doing and the value chain you create. Mm -hmm. And we really thought that since our customer today is the, is the drug industry and the biotech industry, um, and we actually wanted to be answering the question you just asked because it allows us to talk about us being innovative. We thought it was worthwhile to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you also had a, a, had a physical move uh, from downtown Durham out to RTP, right? Uh, yes. Um, well, in the beginning of this year, uh, we closed our Series B financing and um, with a, a new investor, Bristol Myers Squibb. Mm -hmm. So um, with the closing of that round of funding, uh, we, we went from being sort of a pseudo virtual company operating out of our venture, our venture group, um, Hatteras Venture Partners Office, to having our own physical space in Research Triangle Park. Mm -hmm. um, we doubled our size, which meant we went from five to ten people. Right. And we now have, you know, our offices and our new lab. Um, in in the park. Wonderful. So what what type of work is going on with with the lab space? Um, the lab space will allow us um, uh, today it allows us to collect s the, the samples that we want to use to validate the um, profiles that we're developing at off the platform. Um, it allows us to um, test more of these samples. Um, to make sure as we transition what we do in bioinformatics into laboratory assays. Mm -hmm. And it's also, now all the work and all the lab work that I've talked about to date has been done off of biopsy tissue, much of which is in a, what we call a fixed state, called a paraffin block. But a new area that's gotten a lot of excitement lately is called the liquid biopsy which means that we can find much of this, um, of these uh, nucleic acids in the blood. Sure. And so our work in the lab is also going to be seeing how we can transition the platform to not only be looking at data coming off of tissue, but also out of blood samples as well. And that work's all gonna be done in our lab. That sounds very exciting. And I know liquid biopsy is, is a burgeoning area at this point. So would your company perhaps be, be working with uh, diagnostic companies that are offering liquid biopsy, for example? What we're doing it, um, as a company is building the innovative side of, of it. Mm -hmm. So um, we will certainly be working with the, the people who manufacture either the instruments or the reagents, the, the chemicals that we use to do the testing, um, and bring those into the laboratory. And then our goal will be to validate them to the point that our customers 
which the drug industry would want to integrate them into their trials and studies. And chances are, when it gets to that point, it would be performed by some of the groups that are offering liquid biopsies. So, so one way to think about it is, um, you know, we're not necessarily building the computer, but we're building the chip within the computer, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then um, more the, the intelligence in the system is what we're trying to, to develop. I see. That makes perfect sense. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Myla Lai-Goldman from Gene-Centric Therapeutics. Uh, Myla, tell us a little bit more about the, the actual uh, products on the shelf that uh, Gene-Centric is offering at this point, beginning with uh, the, the lung cancer uh, subtyping, lung subtyping predictor, LSP. All right. Um, LS, there are several um, tests that are within LSP. Um, uh, one test um, is that uh, actually categorizes lung cancer into certain categories that um, are done by pathologists today, but we do them genomically. Mm-hmm. And those categories are called adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. And um, this test assay is actually is offered by LabCorp. It's on their menu called HistoPlus. Uh-huh. And um, then we took each one of those categories, the adenocarcinoma and the squamous cell carcinoma. And remember I told you we had this super high-powered microscope to even look deeper genomically. And then genomically, we've divided the adenocarcinoma into three categories and squamous cell carcinoma into four categories. And so our platform is able to distinguish um, all of these now seven categories out of the two. And those are what, uh, what we call the biologic subtypes. And those are products that we are offering um, th- through our work with the drug companies today. I see. And so this, this is the type of information that a clinician, uh, an oncologist, ultimately, uh, could tailor treatment based on. Right. So today, the products, the histoplus product, the histology predictor product is offered to clinicians. Generally, it's used when there are challenges looking under the microscope and making that diagnosis. Um, the biologic subtypes, the categories being offered today in drug development, we see as ultimately being put in kits and being offered um, by, being requested by the oncologist to help them tailor uh, the drug treatments for their patients. That's a little bit down the road, but that's the goal. And and that technology is still in the process of being validated? Do I read that correctly? Well, it's being validated because it's being integrated into the drug studies. So we actually, in the drug studies, can can take a look at the treatment versus the categories and see can we predict the better outcomes. So that's... um, if, if we go back to some of the beginnings of when we were talking um, mm-hmm. this morning, I said one thing I learned in the business model is you have to, for, for a test to be successful, you have to demonstrate clinical utility. Until you have that evidence, that test is not going to get adopted. 
So by integrating with the drug developers in their trials, that's where that demonstration of clinical utility is being developed. Okay. So mm-hmm. that we understand how the drug works and how the test works, and and we know what to tell the oncologists of how to use both I in see. the future. Well, I, I know that that's been a, a major issue and, and in some sense an impediment uh, to the development uh, of pharmacogenomics is that implementation implementation step and, and validation, uh, which seems to be coming around at this point, right. finally. I think part of it is because we all know, you know, how high the bar is. Yeah. And that's one reason we decided we needed to work with the drug developers. We needed to get that data. That data needed to be de- developed as a co-development, as mm-hmm. an integration, rather than us trying to work on the sidelines to develop you know, really that kind of data. So do, do you see a future here where uh, the new drugs that come out would come, come out with an accompanying uh, diagnostic test? You know, we see that already with some, with some tests. It's primarily um, uh, certain of the known mutations in cancer mm-hmm. have a test that goes with it. And we do see um, other tests that are being used in immunotherapy. But we have a ways to go, both in terms of understanding what drug combinations should be used and the whole spectrum of tests that we really need to understand to do the, the kind of precision medicine in cancer like we do in HIV, mm-hmm. where patients get what we call drug cocktails. They get actually several drugs. Right. We, we need to understand how to develop that right combination of drugs for the patient so that we can transform diseases like lung cancer like we did for HIV. Sure. Well, we want to turn back a little bit to your product line before we uh, move on. But uh, you're also working, as you mentioned, on head and neck cancer. Yes. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, um, there's quite, we have completed our work in developing the subtypes in head and neck cancer. You know, head and neck cancer is actually uh, many cancers because there are many different parts in the head and neck. So um, some of our work was, you know, sorting sorting out what we actually wanted to study. And uh, some of the interesting work, we've we've developed subtypes similar to what I described in in, uh, lung cancer. But um, one interesting aspect with head and neck cancer, it's known that human papillomavirus, or HPV, is involved in head and neck cancer. And most patients with um, head and neck cancer and HPV do better, have a better prognosis. But some of the work that we've done with subtypes is to actually be able to identify perhaps those patients with HPV and head and neck cancer who won't do as well. Mm-hmm. because they're a different subtype. So that's, we're, we're a little bit earlier in our work in, in um, head and neck cancer than we are in lung cancer, but that's one of the interesting findings that we've had in, in uh, looking at subtypes. Sure, so will that uh, ultimately, hopefully, uh, develop into a, a product in the near future? Well, we are, we are uh, ready today to integrate head and neck into the drug development pipeline okay. and um, having discussions right now about how we might accomplish that. 
I see. And uh, are, are you working on uh, introducing the, the CSP line into other types of cancer? And if so, uh, which ones are you looking at? Well, we've already begun some work in bladder cancer. Um, and uh, we have others that we're, we're thinking about doing. But, you know, while the work in lung cancer emerged from the science of Chuck Peru and Neil Hayes, and of course my personal interest because of um, you know my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're really looking now, now that um, the drug companies are becoming familiar with their work. We're listening to them about what their needs are, and about what areas they think we can help them with. So um, again, putting a little bit of that combination of science and business together and you know, developing science for a purpose, you know, for their purpose. Sure. Well, there, there must be, you must be generating a great deal of interest there uh, as, as the drug companies uh, do become aware of, of what you have to offer because uh, it can ultimately, you know, the, if the bottom line is the bottom line, it could ultimately make clinical trials much more efficient and hopefully uh, less expensive and maybe ultimately bring the cost of some of these drugs down. Well, that's certainly... Can't promise that. Yeah. <laughs> that's a complicated question, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> a complicated problem. <laughs> but, um, well, hopefully in that equation, we'll bring up what, peop- what the, pers- the value of the tests that go along with it, which is yeah. much of my mission as well. Indeed. But, yes, there is a lot of interest. There's a lot of dialogue. And I think when also, not only for our platform, but just when you're able to have these kinds of discussions about how these two different businesses need to work together, you end up with a very you know, productive brainstorming and hopefully a productive outcome for the sure. patient. One of the things be in our few remaining minutes, I did want to get you to comment on, Myla, is the importance of partnerships in uh, in the gene-centric business. Uh, you, you've mentioned that LabCorp is still involved and a, a major partnership now with Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, and you're also involved with uh, Hatteras Ventures right. yourself. So how, how does all that tie together and are you still seeking other partnerships? Um, well, I, yes, uh, you know, GeneCentric has been incredibly lucky, uh, first of all, um, you know, to have all of its partnerships. And it really, it first started with UNC, you know, and UNC, um, you know, developing um, you know, uh, the Carolina Express license and the means to really have the founders, you know, form companies and be innovators in, in that regard. And certainly, um, you know, learning and working with the Hatteras team um, has been just, you know, somebody who came from, you know, more of a big company environment um, to really understand how does this all get started? How do you start a company? How do you nurture a company? Um, that is just a tremendous asset this community has by having Hatteras Venture Partners as part of its community. And there are you know, several companies, um, several out of UNC, but of others that they've really you know, nurtured and, and 
brought to market um, and um, are a tremendous partner in every regard. I mean, I mentioned the money side of it earlier, but really it's the people there and who they know and how they work together that broadens the village of a new company in such a tremendous way. You know, one can't write it even all down because it's, it's, it's so broad and has such breadth to it. And of course, I mean, I'm just a big believer that, um, you know, in partnerships and in expanding, you know, how, who you collaborate with and making things basically a win-win for every partner because ultimately that's the only way you get to that big win Right. For that patient, there. Yeah, that that's where where it all ends up. That's isn't it? they're the center of the universe. They're the reason we're all here. Indeed. Well, Myla Goldman, uh, Lie Goldman, I want to thank you for joining me on today on Radio In Vivo. Uh, it's been a wonderful hour, and I wish you continuing success uh, for you and for Gene Centric. Thank you very much. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio and Vivo. You can check out the website, radioandvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio and Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy this show, we ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Now stay tuned for one of the most popular shows on the WCOM schedule, The Courage Cocktail with Leanne McClymont. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.